if y'all want to hop up, we'll open our Bibles or iPhones, and we'll be in Acts 22.30 through 23.11. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect on the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension rose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees said that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. It's the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Jeff. You can be seated. Well, again, if you're new, uh, welcome to the parks. Uh, we really are uh, seriously glad that you're here. Um, this is what we do at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and we are making our way through the book of Acts. And so uh, this particular passage this morning, so if you have your Bible or notes or whatever it is, keep them uh, on your lap, because we're going to walk uh, pretty, pretty much verse by verse through, through this section. And we are obviously, there, there are only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. We're, we're, at the, we're nearing the end. And uh, this will probably be the shortest section of scripture that we, um, we will walk through here on out. And we'll probably finish up Acts in the next four to five weeks uh, in this teaching series. But um, uh, up front, the reason this is a short passage, or we're only using this section, is because of verse 11. Uh, I've got to be honest, verse 11 kind of stopped me in my tracks, and I'll, I'll explain that here as we teach through it. But I want to say this passage or this section um, is the second defense there are five defenses that Paul gives. And what I mean by defenses is kind of like arguments or like he has to defend the faith or defending not himself, but kind of the accusations coming against him. There are five of those and we're on number two here. And, and so Paul uh, never actually gets to address the accus- accusation that comes against him in Jerusalem. So a little history, if you haven't been with us, Paul is in Jerusalem. He traveled there, uh, understanding that what was going to come from him, because the Spirit told him, was uh, persecutions and probably imprisonment and beatings and all those things. But surprise, surprise, that's everywhere Paul went, he received those things. But here in Jerusalem, uh, it is occurring and it's happening. But they have arrested him now because of a, a, a lie, one, um, and an indictment. And the indictment is this, that they... Uh, they, they, they believe that Paul took a Gentile, Trophimus, into the temple, okay? And they manufactured this story uh, because they knew that if Paul defiled the temple, that uh, the, the, really the sentence for that, the punishment, was death. 
And so they, they lobbed out this indictment against Paul and this accusation, but Paul never gets to actually address the accusation. He never gets to address that, hey, I, I, I didn't do that. I didn't take Trophimus into the temple. You guys supposed that. You guys made that up. This, this trial and all these trials are, are completely uh, unjust. And, and so I want us to walk through this scene and then uh, we'll really uh, hone in on, on verse 11. But I want us to get into this scene because I don't want us to miss it, right? It's real easy to read the scriptures and go, uh, you know, just kind of glaze over and go, okay, another trial, another defense. Um, in Luke, the author of Acts, he does something very interesting, and he's kind of shifted to this. He's just telling a story. He, he doesn't give any, like, okay, commentary, if you will, right? You notice that, like, as, as Jeff just read that, it was just facts. You feel that? Like, it was just, it was just straight up facts. Here's what happened. And so we're going to have to draw some inferences. We're going to have to kind of dig and unpack. So how do you do that in scripture? How do you do that when you read the scriptures? And something we say a lot around here is this, and you need to write this down or think like this as you read scripture. Scripture interprets scripture. Okay. Scripture interprets scripture. So it's not just somebody, Hey, this is kind of my belief or my thought or those things. And those are okay to say, but the foundation must be scriptures. So if you're going to say, I think this occurred, or I believe Paul probably did this, or in, in two, it's accountability for me, like from you to me, is like, Kyle, show me in the word, right? Show me in the scriptures why that would be your thought. And so that provides a, a framework there. And I'll try to do my best in this case, because we're going to have to draw some of that commentary from other places in scripture where Paul uh, writes, and, and particularly also in the Old Testament. So I've divided it into three sections, right? Any of you like, like structure and form? I'm like, I, I draw outlines anyway. So the first section is this, verse uh, 30, that's in chapter 22, verse 5. And the two words I've put with this are conscience and violence. Conscience and violence. Let's look at it in verse 1, where we get that first word. In looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. So Paul now finds himself in front of a whole new group of men known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was split between two parties, the, the Sadducees, which were the larger ruling party, and the Pharisees, the, the minority group, and they were more of the religious leaders of the day. And Paul, it says, interesting, looked intently at them. So think of Paul like, not like sheepishly or kind of like, okay, tiptoeing. And Paul, uh, excuse me, Sam last week talked a lot about Paul's courage and where it came from and his strength. But he like looks intently at these guys. And he says this with as much conviction and as which, with as much boldness as he possibly can. He goes, listen, I have lived a life that is guilt-free and blameless up to this day. You see, the word conscience for us with, with our thinking and with our definition kind of seems like this nebulous term, right? It's like, what's conscience, right? Is this like a little cloud over my shoulder that's like, don't do that, do this, right? Like, what, what, what is conscience, right? For us, it's, it's kind of one of these things, like, it, it's just, I, I don't know. But for a first century reader, there was a lot of weight to that word. It was this idea of even adherence to the Old Testament law. This idea that, that Paul, what he was saying, and, and remember the indictments were that Paul wasn't following the law. He wasn't upholding the law. He was telling Jews, the rumor was, he was telling Jews that they no longer, when they came to faith in Christ, they no longer needed to adhere to the law. To the Gentiles, he was saying the same thing, which was an absolute lie. And so for him, in front of the high priest and this, this council, for him to go, I have lived with all good conscience. I have lived blameless and guiltless was offensive because that's the very reason they have him on trial that he is guilty. 
that he has lived blameless, right? That he has, has blame in this, not blameless. That he is full of blame. That he is guilty. And so it's kind of this comment by Paul to burn them, right? To say, I live in good conscience every day, including this one right now. Now, hear me. I want to bring a little bit of application here. When it comes to uh, defending our faith, when it comes to uh, giving an account for our faith as disciples, our character matters, all right? So oftentimes when we, and, and this is right theology, it's good theology, it's what we believe, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, yes? Like that's how we are saved. But oftentimes that can lend itself to a false doctrine to believe, well, therefore, I can live however I want, right? All under grace, covered. I can say what I want. I can live however I want. I can do whatever I want. And Paul dealt with that in Romans, right? Where he says, do you think because you believe that you're saved by grace means that you can continue sinning? And he uses some of the strongest word in the scriptures. He goes, by no means or heck no, that is not what it means. In fact, if that's how you live, then you actually don't understand the grace extended to you in Christ. And so backing up now, here we have Paul before them going, I'm standing here in good conscience. Was Paul saying that he was sinless? That he was perfect? Not at all. And in fact, in this passage, we're going to is blame that Paul isn't. All right. But what Paul's going is, listen, I've lived my life as blamelessly as I can, as upright as I can. And you say, well, well how, how are you drawing all that? Well, think about what Paul says here. Once again, scripture interprets scripture. First Corinthians chapter four, verse four. Look at this. For I am not aware of anything against myself. Paul's going, I'm not actively engaging in any sin. I'm not actively breaking the law, meaning the, the law of God. But I am not thereby acquitted, meaning it's not my good works that save me. It's not that testimony of a good conscience that, that redeems me. What redeems me? The Lord. And he says that here. It is the Lord who judges me. Who's the one that makes our conscience clean? Hebrews 10. If you have notes, write that down. Hebrews 10. It is Christ who cleanses our conscience. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. He's going, listen, I'm saved. And I can say here and state that fact because of Christ and Christ alone. But also, my character defends itself. I haven't done any of the things you are indicting me on. And here's where we get the violence, right? That's conscience, now violence. No sooner did Paul testify to the uprightness of his own character, did the high priest Ananias command those who were near Paul, what does it say? to strike him in the face. And I think this wasn't just like the nearest dude to him patting him on the mouth, right? Like sometimes you do with like a kid, like, hey, sh- sh- quiet down, you know, like, mind your mouth. I think these were blows. These were blows to, to his face, particularly to his mouth. And the reality is that this Ananias, this high priest who was in charge of upholding the law and and Paul was on trial for not upholding the law, actually just broke the law. Look at this in Leviticus 19. You shall do no injustice in court. That's the law of God. Ananias, high priest, your responsibility is to uphold the law. The very law of God says, do not do any injustice in the court. Injustice like hitting someone who is on trial in the face. Injustice, like trying someone who is not guilty at all, who has not broken the law in any regard. Why did Ananias have so much anger and so much aggression towards Paul? Well, here's why. He thought he was a troublemaker. 
He thought Paul had anything but a clean conscience. He, he assumed that Paul was lying. But however, what we see Ananias, even historically, not just in this scene, but had distorted the law, the law of God, to his own purposes in making it self-serving rather than being served under it, right? Believing himself to be a defender of the law, he, not Paul, actually betrayed the law. And so what we have here is Paul being beat again, being slapped in the mouth. And listen, as a, as a man, um, there are very few things more degrading, I think, than being slapped in the face, right? Being true, right? Men, like you could do a lot of things, punch me, kick me, do all those things, but just slapping me in the face. And that's what would have occurred to Paul. And so what happens next is very, very interesting. Um, look at how Paul responds. Verse three, and then Paul said to him, Ananias, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Like whitewashed wall, like that seems like a bad slam. Not back then. It was essentially going, I see your white robe. I see your high priestly garb. I see your garments that say you're the defender of the law, but you are a whitewashed wall, meaning everything on the outside looks pretty, but on the inside you are dead. You're useless. And then he goes, are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, Leviticus 19, you order me to be struck. Woo. Pretty big rebuke here. Okay. Was Paul right in saying that? Was Paul justified? In his response, he's in a trial where he's absolutely innocent. He's been beat time and time again. And now he gets slapped in the face for simply saying, I haven't done anything wrong. Justified? Yeah. Correct response? No. And here's where we need to pay attention. And probably, I would venture a guess, wherever you leaned in responding when I asked the question, was Paul right, probably tells us something about your personality. So if you would have went, Paul was absolutely right. He was dealing with the injustice. He was matching tone for tone, right? He didn't back down because somebody slapped him in the mouth. He went back at him and said, you whitewash wall. Like, yes, that's what we should do as Christians. Is it? Is that how we respond? It's not what Paul says. Look at this in 1 Corinthians 4, 12. Second part. When we are reviled, we do what? This is Paul, right? This isn't James. This isn't Peter. This is the guy who just got slapped in the mouth and just said, you whitewashed wall back to him. When we're persecuted, we what? We endure. Oh, okay, we're getting a little clarity here. You say, but he, he's been doing that. That's what we've seen out of Paul every single time. Paul's human. Look at me. Paul is not Jesus. Jesus, when he is persecuted, persecuted, 
What does the scripture say? He spoketh not, right? King James on you right there. He spoketh not. He didn't say anything. He went and was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And here's why we worship Jesus and not Paul. Paul is human. Paul is still a sinner in need of grace like you and me. Here is my fears. We've walked through Acts as we see Paul time and time again with all this courage, with all this boldness, with all this enduring, with all this blessing, right? In the face of persecution, we can begin to revere him to a place that only Jesus should be. And so I'm thankful for Luke to give us these little flashes here where Paul speaks. If we're honest, oftentimes like we speak, we're justified. And so I say this, but in turn, that's actually not honoring to God. And so let let me say this, just because you are justified in your response or action does not mean it is obedient or honoring to God. That is in person or online. Just because you are justified in your response or action does not mean it is obedient or honoring to God. Think about Christ. We, as, as Christ followers, as disciples, we live in an upside down kingdom. The ways and the ethics of this world are flipped on their heads. So when the world expects us to be shouting as the church, we should be found quiet and probably praying. Now, hold on. Kyle, are you just saying we just tolerate injustice? No. Both Jesus and Paul, they condemned hypocrisy anytime they saw it. But how did they go about it? With humility and with meekness and with gentleness. There are very few flashes, and I bet you can only think of one in Christ, where he outbursts. And it's found in the temple, right? That's the one you were thinking of where he's throwing over the tables. But where was it? The temple. It was in the church. It was the meeting place of God. And what was he outraged by? That they had turned his place into a marketplace, his house, his father's house into a marketplace and not a house of what? Prayer. He's not out in culture flipping tables. He's within the temple flipping tables, talking so harshly without sinning, by the way. And you say, well, Kyle, why do you think that in this instance, Paul was sinning? Great question, right? I think we can draw that one from 1 Corinthians, how he said we should respond in those things. But even more deeply, look at how this passage plays out. Look at this. And those who stood by, verse four, would you revile God's high priest? So now they're going, wait a minute. Paul, you just talked to the high priest in a way that you know is not in line with scripture. What scripture? Well, Exodus 22, verse 28. Paul quotes it. Look at this. He said, verse five, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. One that shows me Paul really knows his Bible. Right? And he goes, I didn't know, I didn't know that it was a high priest. And you're right, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have said that. So, so what's, what's taking place here? And again, this is Luke just giving us the facts, no commentary. So I, I want to tell you some potential things that could have occurred here with Paul and why he didn't know. One, he, he genuinely might not have known that that was Ananias, meaning that Ananias might have not actually had his religious garb on since this was a meeting of the Sanhedrin and not an official meeting. Two, Paul 
Paul didn't know who gave the order, potentially, because of how much commotion was taking place. So he didn't know who said to slap him in the mouth. He just gave kind of an outburst and a comment. Three, uh, we know Paul's eyesight was not very good, right? This could be just a logistical thing. Like his eyesight wasn't very well. And so maybe he couldn't see who said that. Maybe he just saw everybody dressed in white. And so he just made a comment um, like that. Four, um, maybe Paul had been away from, he was away from Jerusalem a very long time. And maybe he didn't know Ananias was, was the high priest, right? He had been gone so long. He just maybe didn't know. Um, another option, which again, this probably tells you something about my personality is also a, uh, it's kind of a sarcastic view. Um, where perhaps Paul is using a bit of irony here, where he's looking at the high priest and he says, I don't see anything high priestly about him. I'm in here in, a, in an unfair trial. I just got hit in the mouth, which breaks Leviticus 19. I don't see anything high priestly about him. So therefore, any statement I want to make doesn't matter because he's not really a high priest because he's not following God's law. So it doesn't matter. That's the one I tend to like and lean toward, but I don't think that's probably the case. Uh, if I had to guess, or if I had to narrow it down based upon the other scriptures, I would say probably Paul didn't know that it was the high priest who gave the order. And when he was, when he was informed that the high priest Ananias gave the order, what did he do? He stepped back. He apologized. He, he repented, if you will. He changed his tone and realized he was out of bounds. Um, I think we can take a massive note on that from Paul and a lead on that from Paul that we as disciples should pursue the proper tone in our lives, in our interactions with other people and respect we should give to those in authority over us and those around us, refusing, hear me, refusing to mimic the disrespect so rampant in our culture. You want about to talk about a, an upside down kingdom. It's about a people being more respectful, outdoing one another and those in culture, maybe who don't even quote unquote deserve it, with respect and not mirroring the disrespect we see. And when we fail to speak as we should, hear me, and we will, we will. Our tone will be out of bounds. We'll, we'll, we'll say something disrespectfully. We should emulate Paul and own it. In humility, own it. In repentance, own it, right? And go, that, that was not right. That was not in line with, with God. All right. Part two, we need to move a little bit more quickly. And two words I'd give to this section, which are verse six through verse 10, is resurrection and division. So we had, uh, we had the first section with conscience and violence and now resurrection and division. And the trial takes a sharp turn here. Paul diverts attention from himself onto a division that the Sadducees and the Pharisees have between one another. It's a, it's a brilliant rhetorical move, but it also is highlighting the centrality of the resurrection of Christ. Like we must understand that just as much as the resurrection was central to the Christian faith back then, it's central and still divisive in our faith today and in our culture. And so Paul, here's what he says. He's, he goes, actually, I know the reason for my arrest it wasn't about Trophimus. It wasn't about, about uh, defiling the temple. It was about the hope of the resurrection. That's what he says. And immediately when, when, the, when the Sadducees hear the word resurrection, they go, boop. And the reason they do that is because the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels or spirits, right? And the Pharisees, on the other hand, though, and Paul in this section goes, I'm the son of a Pharisee. I am a Pharisee. 
He understood what the Pharisees believed, right? The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, right? They believed in angels and the spirit. But the Sadducees on the other side, they forgot about an occasion. Five books of actually talks to them about the resurrection. The Sadducees believed in the first five books of Moses, the first five books of, of, of our Bible. And the reason they came to the conclusion about the resurrection not being true or possible or any part of their faith was they believed that it wasn't talked about. And angels and demons and all those things weren't talked about in the first five books, so we just therefore won't believe it. However, they've forgotten. They've forgotten about the time where Jesus talks to them about how denying the resurrection actually contradicts God's covenant faithfulness to their forefathers. That in your very denial of the resurrection actually denies that you understand the covenant, first five books of the Bible, right, that God is making with you and your fathers. And the Pharisees, on the other hand, believed the resurrection was Israel, God's chosen people, their ultimate hope, right, was resurrection. And Paul knew this. So hear me. Oftentimes people, they see the law of God as only commandments. Do this, don't do this. The law of God, yes, includes commandments, but the law of God is also about the promises of God, okay? So it's about the promises of God and the resurrection of Christ and for the Pharisees, the resurrection just in this general term is the climax or the, the, the heightened point, the pinnacle of God's promises. And so Paul identified with the Pharisees in going, guys, the hope you have in the resurrection is right. But here, you have it incomplete. The fulfillment of that hope is in the resurrected one. It's in Jesus. And what happens? You heard Jeff read it. It's right there before you. It says a sharp dissension broke out between them. So now, imagine this. Paul just kind of goes, ah, you guys are fighting about this, right? I'm going to kind of step back from this. They begin this sharp division one to another. Now, here's what I want to bring up. The resurrection remains central to our faith as Christ followers. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our proclamation, all that Paul is doing, all that you and I are doing is in vain and our faith is also in vain. But my fear is, hear me, my fear is for us as disciples, us as Christ followers, especially in the 21st century, we, we have a view of the resurrection that is, that is real shallow, and shallow, I mean this, that the resurrection is just some abstract event, right? We get real geeked up about it on one day a year where we put on pastels and fancy clothes and we're like, woo, and have all this enthusiasm. But we really don't understand the significance and the weight of the resurrection today and for me tomorrow and for you the next day, right? And so here's where I want to push in on us just a little bit. What difference does the resurrection make for you today? What difference does it make? Think about that. Big deal or not a big deal? It's a big deal, but I'm not sure why it's a big deal. Here's why it's a big deal. It's a big deal because the resurrection, and N.T. Wright actually says this, was Jesus' gateway to take up the throne. Without the resurrection, what Paul says, everything's for naught. Us singing these songs, us praying these prayers, us reading these scriptures, it's all for naught. Because the resurrection was the thing that illuminated every other thing. Every promise of God, you want to know why we can stand on it as the foundation? The resurrection of Christ. Why we look into these scriptures and we would look at passages like Acts 23, 1 through 11, go, what do you say? We stand on those because the resurrection is true. It's alive. And so if Jesus is on his throne, you know what that means? He's king. 
We throw around that term a lot, right? Jesus is Lord. What does that actually mean? It means that he is over every square inch of everything, your life and my life. That's the kind of ramification that the resurrection has. And Paul's illuminating that hopefully for this group, but mostly for us in this case to look at and go, okay, do we believe beyond just more, just mere intellectual assent that the resurrection influences and pervades every single thing? Because it does. That's what Paul's trying to convey. It's what Paul's trying to get across. You see, because what's taking place and what still takes place in our world today is this. How do people rule? How do kings, lowercase k, come into power? They come into power through violence, death, bullying, right? Asserting dominance over one group or the other. But how did Jesus ascend to his throne? By laying down his life and then taking it up again in the resurrection. So either the resurrection points that Jesus is king, or without the resurrection, means nothing. And then verse 11. So while these two groups are fighting against one another, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, once again, this, this group of soldiers has to intervene and get Paul out of there, right? It's like Paul's constantly getting carried out of these violent mobs. So he's carried out of there, and he's put back into the barracks. And this is, this is where verse 11 kind of stopped me in the tracks. Just go with me. Verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him. The following night, who? The Lord. The one we just talked about, resurrection power, king seated on his throne, victorious over death, hell, and the grave, is now where? With Paul. He's with him. The same Lord that, that stood at the cross for Paul is now with Paul. This is incredibly powerful. But he doesn't just leave his presence there. It's not just his presence that's there. Notice that he says something verbally. Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Seems like a fair enough statement. But I want us to feel the weight of this. And this is where we have to stop. We can't go on because I don't want to miss this moment here with verse 11. We will not see any more red letters, meaning Christ speaking specifically. Paul quotes Christ throughout Acts from here on. This is the last time we see Jesus showing up for Paul in this moment specifically and speaking. Imagine what Paul is thinking about in those barracks. In that cell. I don't know what he's speculating, but I have to think that this wasn't one of Paul's kind of rah-rah moments. This is probably a pretty low moment in Paul's life. He came into Jerusalem with a largely unsupportive church that he hoped would have been supportive to him. He embarked on a plan, if you remember from Acts chapter 20 and 21, that backfired on him. Emotionally, Physically, he suffered at the hands of rulers in crowds. And I believe Paul also, as seen in this passage, 
probably questioned and regretted some of his actions. You ever been there? You ever been in those moments, those real difficult places, those real dark spaces where you're wondering, you're thinking, God, where, where are you? God, are you near? God, do you, even, do you even care about me? Do you even see me? And just when Paul needed to be reminded of the sufficiency of God's grace toward him, the Lord shows up. At just the right time. So hear me. There are so many of you in our church, I'm speaking specifically about the Parks Church, who are walking through some very deep waters. The ones I know about and the ones that, probably many more that I don't know about. Whether it's depression or anxiety, fear, maybe it's marriage, maybe it's a job, maybe it's just unknown things. And maybe you're wondering the same questions that I just asked of the Lord. And while I know that this specific statement was directly to Paul, right? There's not a straight line we can draw from this statement to Paul to us. But the character of our Savior that is on display in verse 11 is still true for you and me, just as it was true for Paul that I want you to be encouraged this morning as Paul was encouraged in that barrack cell, wondering, am I even gonna make it out of Jerusalem? Lord, I know you've called me to go to Rome. Am I even gonna get there? Lord, I'm, I'm bloody. My face, his mouth was probably bloody. I've been beat everywhere I've gone. For your name, I messed up today and my mouth ran off. I said some things I wish I wouldn't have said. But Lord, I'm struggling here. I'm suffering. I'm fighting. And I think there are four encouragements found here. And I am so thankful that the Lord would gift us with these encouragements in this season, at this time, for our church, for you, for my heart, that in this season particularly can be very weary, right? And I don't know where you are, but wherever you are, these are still the truths of God, the foundations rooted from the resurrection. And the first one is this, that the Lord knows us. Like the Lord knows you. And these aren't trite statements, by the way. Like these are promises from scripture, promises that we hold on to because the resurrection of Jesus is true. You see, Jesus knew Paul's situation. He knew his condition. He knew what he was facing and he stepped into it because he knows him. And this isn't like a distant knowing, like God knows everything, right? So he knows your name. This isn't like you know somebody from your graduating class in 1983, okay? Like this is an intimate knowledge, like a father knows his son or his daughter. You say, where's that found? John 10, verse 14, Jesus says, I know my sheep. After just saying, I'm the good shepherd, he goes, I know my sheep. I know why they're limping. I know why that wound is there. And I know that because I know them. 
I'm acquainted with them. He knows you by name. He knows your need, whether it's only known by you and no one else. Second thing is this, that he doesn't just know us. Jesus is with us. The Lord was there. It says that the Lord stood by him. Like, do all the interpretive gymnastics you want to not believe that he wasn't there. He was there with him in a real, physical, present kind of way. You say, why, why, would, why would Jesus do that? Like, because that's who he is. That's what our God does. That's what makes Christianity so unique, is that our God doesn't, and he could because he's all-powerful, he could go from a distance and go, you're saved. But what does he do? He sends his son to put on flesh to dwell among us. He sends him among us. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us is who Jesus is. And so that doesn't just stop at salvation, right? Go back to the Old Testament, right? The very familiar story, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Fiery furnace. We sing a song about it all the time. There's a what? Another in the fire. God could have just went, hey, don't burn them up, right? Like they're not gonna be hurt, don't burn them up. Instead, what does our God choose to do? Because this is who our God is. Step in with them in the fire. The same is true for you. God's going, oh, yes, I know you. I know those things about you and that doesn't cause me to run away from you. That causes me to draw closer to you, believer. That I'm gonna walk with you. I'm alongside you, right? This is Hebrews, right? Where does this promise come from? Hebrews 13, verse five. I will never leave you or forsake you. Again, that's not just a coffee cup verse. That is something that we stand on, that God is not going to leave us or forsake us at any point. Your worst moment, your best moment, the Lord is there with you. He knows you. He's with you. And here's the third one. He's actually for you. The Lord knows us. The Lord's with us. And the Lord is for us. Look at what he encouraged Paul with. The first thing he says is, take courage. Like Paul, like, take courage where you are. I want you to be encouraged. I, w- I want to speak life into you. And hear me, don't, don't hear me with some, like, prosperity gospel stuff, but like the, the word of the Lord is life. John 10, 10, he came so that we might have life and life to the fullest, like true life. But notice what full life, true life meant for Paul was that he was in prison barracks. But what gave him life? Not his own strength, not his own intellect, not his own ability. What gave him life is that Jesus was there with him. And so that's how we know that God is for us. When I say that, because he is with us. And then he tells him, he says, you have testified. If you have the ESV, it says, you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. Um, To the facts about me in Greek, the original, right? That's one word. Me. So Jesus essentially says to Paul, you've done a good job because you've told me. You've testified about me, not about religion, not about religiosity, not about some philosophy. You've testified about me, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Be encouraged. Be encouraged to keep going. The the Lord is for you. Disciple, Christ follower, the Lord is for you, okay? 
You go, well, it seems like God's opposing me in these moments, right? It, it would seem like Paul could go, God, it sure seems like this closed door after this closed door after this beating after this beating. Hear me. Closed doors and open doors are not necessarily how you distinguish the will of God. Okay, hear, hear, hear me. Right? Even I know that's thrown around a lot. Surely prison, Jerusalem, with an unsupportive church, would have seemed like Paul on the surface to go, closed door. But what was the will of God? That he walk faithfully through the moments. That he walk faithfully in Jerusalem, come what may. Now, how do you know those? How do you, how do you know what faithful obedience is? Walking closely with the Father. Walking closely with the Lord. And the last thing is this, that I just want to encourage you with. That the Lord isn't finished with you. The, the, the Lord isn't finished with us. Paul, Paul could have encountered this moment and the, these trials and all these things and gone, there's no way I'm making it to Rome. There's no way. But what does Jesus confirm to him? You're going to Rome. You're going to make it through Jerusalem. You're going to make it through these things. You're going to make it through these trials. You're going to make it through these beatings. You're going to make it through this imprisonment because you have to go to Rome. I have a plan for you. It's for you to go to Rome. Now, we'll kind of table what's going to happen in Rome to you, all right? But you're going to get to Rome, all right? By the way, Paul dies in Rome, just to ruin the story, okay, for you. You're going to Rome. Listen, there is not one day, one day that you will live longer than the Lord plans. You will not live shorter than the Lord plans. Psalms 31:15 says this, the course of my life is in your power. Let me say it another way. The days of my life are in the power and hand of God. Every single day is marked by the Lord. Every day, it's your breath in my lungs. He gives breath and he takes it away. And God has given you breath and me breath today for his purpose and his plan and also for my good, for your good. You say, well, all this is really good news, Kyle, right? That Jesus is for us, he's with us, he's, he, he knows us, he isn't finished with us, but makes me ask the question, how do we expect to like know that? It's great Jesus showed up literally side by side by Paul. I wish that would happen for me, right? Wish that would happen, then I could be like, yes, or definitely I'll move forward with these things. You know how that happens? Right here. You wanna know the disclosed will of God? Right here. You want to know the promises of God? It's found in his scriptures. It's found in the word of God. It's found in moments like this where we are walking through, where we're edifying one another in what the holy scriptures, the disclosed will of God says to us so that we can stand on those promises and not just make things up, not just manufacture things. Because here's what happens. We manufacture flimsy, weak things that don't hold any water. And when things get hard, if we've manufactured them, they will fail us every time. The great reformer, John Calvin, he says this. He says, this, this is the whole of what we should seek in the scriptures. To be well acquainted with Jesus Christ and the infinite riches which we are con contained in him and which are by him offered to us from God, his father. What's our endeavor? Our endeavor is to know Christ. How do we know Christ? Through the word of scripture through the living word of God. And as we get acquainted with who Jesus is, here's what happens. Our confidence grows no matter what our circumstances are. See, some of you are in those circumstances right now that are shaking your foundation. And I want to remind you the promises of God. 
I want to call you back to the scriptures, to the foundation and the bedrock to which we build our lives, the anchor of our souls, so that when the winds and the waves of this world crash and come against us, we are not shaken. Where we'd hear the words of Paul say, you're going to be pressed, but you'll never be crushed. You're going to be persecuted, but you'll never be abandoned. You're going to be knocked down, but not destroyed. See, I hope that this passage and in some way this ending here, this abrupt ending with Paul and Barracks in verse 11, as it has been for my soul, is this incredible picture of encouragement of the heart of our God and the beauty of Christ toward us no matter what we face. Let's pray. Father, um, once again, I am just overwhelmed by your grace and your mercy in allowing us to peer into the scriptures and see your heart. Your heart toward us as a loving father. God, I know some of the stories of pain that people are walking through, even in this room and and those that are watching online. God, I, I know a fraction of the stories behind the tears that roll down many cheeks. God, and there are so many more that, that I don't know, that we don't know as a community, but you are well acquainted with and know perfectly. And so, Lord, I pray that you would you would heal. You would bind up. You would restore. You would remind our hearts of who you are. God, that truly as your word says, the peace that passes understanding, it would be something that doesn't just marinate in our minds, but it moves to our hearts. God, I pray for those walking through particularly difficult times right now. God, that you would restore and bring them the confidence of Christ, that he is with them, that your spirit is alive in them, that they're not forsaken, that they're not unseen by a father, a heavenly father who loves them, who's not disappointed in them. Draw us back to the cross so that we might live in light of the resurrection. Draw us back to the saving power of Jesus. Draw us back to his kingdom, to his lordship. God, forgive me from trying to manufacture my life, trying to curate my life. God, I pray as we go from here this week, we might see flashes and glimpses of your kingdom breaking forth in our personal lives and our households before us at work and school so that we might be confident, more confident in the God that we profess with our lips. Let us, I thank you for our lives. God, I thank you. I thank you for this church. I thank you for a community of people 
who are willing to run into the messiness of this world and this life because we're confident in our God. So let us live with that kind of faith. Give us that kind of faith for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.